This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. This week we have a broadcast from the Mutual Broadcasting System, featuring commentator Wise Williams on the fight between Russia and Germany in August 1941. A little remembered today, Mutual was once the largest radio network in America, with more affiliates than NBC or CBS. For financial and other reasons, though, Mutual never made an investment in television and failed to expand, and was left behind when its competitors made the move to the new medium in the 1950s. Although the network continued in various forms all the way up until the 21st century. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us to continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. Another way to show your support is to visit our website and see our full list of publications at brickpicklemedia.com. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. As the clock strikes, Star, the world's largest selling single-edge razor blade, presents that noted war correspondent and journalist, whose predictions of today may become history tomorrow, Wise Williams. As the clock strikes tonight, greater events than any since the Second World War began appear to be in the making. This is particularly true insofar as they may affect the United States of America. Our leading statesmen fully realize the situation although many people still seem unaware of the powder kegs that are strewn in our vicinity. Events move at such tremendous distance that to the average mind they seem of little concern. While many of us might like to see Hitler defeated, provided our contribution does not upset our accustomed way of life, still others have no love for Stalin and his communist regime. The summing up of American public opinion appears to be that if if Hitler and Stalin succeed in cutting each other's throats, the rest of the world may live happily ever after. And this may be a case of self-deception. As a matter of fact, the Russian-German war is the climax of a world crisis. Ever since Germany's blitz armies crushed France, Hitler has tried to organize his new European order which he thought would be the natural result. He failed for the simple reason that the remaining neutral states, such as Spain, Portugal, Turkey, and Japan, have been reluctant to join hands with the conqueror so long as the great mystery of Russia remained unsolved. When Hitler launched his surprise attack against Stalin, he knew perfectly well what he was doing, and his decision had little to do with wheat, oil, or similar economic considerations. After his Balkan victories, the Red Army remained the only force which might upset his new order apple cart. So long as that army remained intact, 
he might not be able to impose his will upon the entire continent of Europe and such parts of Asia and Africa as form part of the general European picture. Every new Nazi victory in Russia, every new destruction of large Red Army units brings Hitler that much closer to his universal aim. It is from this angle that the Russian war should be considered. It is true that the German army has suffered great losses in the Russian campaign. But under current conditions, these losses are replaceable. Today, Germany undoubtedly is the dominant power on the European continent. If Russia falls, probably no continental power or even combination of powers can successfully oppose Germany. And with every successive victory in Russia, the Nazi propaganda drums beat at an ever-increasing tempo. Today, the two principal pressure areas are in the east and in the west, and each presents a spearhead directed against the United States. The western area comprises France, Spain, and Portugal, including their colonies of North and West Africa. Spain would have been in Hitler's pocket long ago had it not been for France. Therefore, the decisions now being taken in Vichy under Nazi pressure will affect not only France and her colonies, but the entire Latin bloc of European nations. According to a reliable report, the London government circles believe that if Vichy submits, Spain and Portugal, including their overseas possessions, will fall into Hitler's lap. This would mean Nazi control or its camouflaged equivalent in Casablanca and Dakar, in the Cape Verde and Canary Islands, and in the Azores. In addition are the Latin American nations. Cultural bonds in that quarter are almost exclusively with Spain, Portugal, and Italy. It is well known that many political and economically prominent figures in South America have great admiration for Hitler and his works, although at present they refrain from public, publicly expressing opinions. Thus, we consider the Western spearhead directed against the United States. The eastern pressure area, of course, is represented by Japan, a member of the Axis by virtue of the Pact of Berlin and a confessed exponent of her own order in Asia. Japan is definitely committed to strike at the earliest opportunity. Japan, like the European nations, has been held back only by the unknown factor of the Red Army. Her occupation of Indochina may still be regarded as a more or less independent move but it was the last move which she can make without precipitating open conflict. Occupation of Siam means conflict with Great Britain, while a move into Siberia means war with Russia. Japan, dominated as she is by the military clique, is preparing for either move or both. Tokyo knows that England is not strong enough in the Far East to prevent a Japanese occupation of Siam. However, Japan does not know what the United States is prepared to do in the Siamese affair. Even if she attacks Siberia, which seems the more likely course at the moment, the southern push will only be deferred. A Russian collapse will inevitably force the, the Japanese push into Southeast Asia, placing the Philippines in a direct line of their war strategy. And here we have the eastern spearhead directed against the United States. There's a lot of talk these days about precision tools. They're the keystone of the defense industries. But let's not lose sight of the fact that precision tools long have been the backbone of peacetime industry.
Many peacetime industries have contributed to the present emergency by the training of men who are now skillful makers and operators of precision tools. The manufacturers of star precision-made single-edge blades are proud of the fact that for years they have been training men to handle precision tools with microscopic accuracy. If some of these men are now employing the skills they acquired from star blades toward the manufacturing of defense equipment, we are doubly proud, for we know they're extremely accurate, skillful, dependable workmen. Developing a star single-edged blade to its super-keen perfection calls for the same skill that is required in highly technical defense work. That's why a star blade in a star or gem razor glides over your face, smoothly, quickly, giving you clean, refreshing shaves. Men, I'd like you to try genuine precision-made star blades. Try them at our risk. Your dealer will give you two star single-edged blades free with the regular 12 for a quarter package. 14 super-keen star blades for only 25 cents. Use the two free blades. If you don't get the most comfortable, longest-lasting shaves you've ever had, return the remaining 12 blades and get back your full purchase price. After your first star shave, you'll know why we're so proud of our part in training men to use precision tools. Now back to Wyatt Williams. The Russian war presents several new developments which are gratifying to the Japanese. Perhaps the most significant is the bombing of Berlin by the Russians. Under existing conditions, the nearest bases from which these bombers can take off are in the Moscow area. The round trip between Moscow and Berlin is around 2,500 miles. This means that only the largest type of long-distance bombers comparable to our flying fortress type could have made these flights. It should be noted that these flights occurred only after the Russian war entered its seventh week, although earlier in the war the Soviet bases were much nearer. The fact is that Russia did not have her longest-range bombers in European Russia at the outbreak of hostilities. Russian strategy in the West, because of proximity of bases to possible objectives, called for the employment of medium-range bombing planes, and many of these were brought down by the Luftwaffe during the first stage of the surprise assault. Russian long-range bombing power was concentrated in the Far East, particularly around Vladivostok, whence the Red Air Fleets were intended to strike blows at Japan's overcrowded cities in the event of hostilities. Since these bombers have now appeared on the European front, obviously Stalin has transferred his bombing fleets from the Far East to Moscow, a fact which undoubtedly is satisfactory to Japan. However, these Russian air attacks on Berlin appear to have been carried out more from the propaganda viewpoint than for strictly military reasons. Stalin must show his people some offensive power, and the Berlin raids make excellent publicity. But their value is largely confined to the dramatic. The German capital has been raided so often by the British that a few bombs more or less make no appreciable dis difference. Obviously, the final outcome of the war will depend on the success or failure of the German land armies. In this respect, late reports are anything but encouraging. Reliable information via London is to the effect that the present position of Marshal Budiani's forces on the southern Ukraine front is desperate. This is the result of three strong mechanized spearheads which Field Marshal Rundstedt's southern Nazi army group has managed to drive far into the rear of the fortified Stalin defense system. In my last broadcast, it was reported that strong Nazi forces are pushing along both banks of the southern Bug River toward the Black Sea naval base 
of Nikolaev against virtually no opposition. The eastern of these forces has now veered inland from the Bug River and reached the Ingo River in the vicinity of Bobrinets, aiming apparently at a crossing of the Niep River above the Black Sea port of Kherson, situated on the Niep estuary. The successful accomplishment of this maneuver would completely isolate Kherson, Nikolaev, and Odessa, all three considerably in the rear of this Nazi column. It would mean a quick Nazi occupation of Russia's three most important Black Sea ports, together with the encirclement of large Russian forces still holding out in the fortifications of the Ushomir line. The second Nazi spearhead, after winning the Battle of Balayatserkov last week, has crossed the Niep River at a number of places below Kiev and is pushing eastward toward Poltava, evidently with the objective of preventing a concentration of new Russian defense forces along the big bend of the Niep near the principal source of the Ukraine's electric power. A third spearhead has fought its way across the Niep above Kiev and is now attempting to join hands with the Nazi column pushing down from Gomel on the central front in an effort to encircle the Russian forces, still holding the Stalin defense system around the juncture of the Diep and Pripet rivers. On the Leningrad front, the Nazis have also been successful. Last week, Marshal Voroshilov's forces undertook a strong counterattack from the north against the German lines extending, extending south of Lake Ilman. For a while, the counterthrust, which had reached Solsky appeared to be successful, but according to latest reports, the Nazis closed in from two sides, and the Russian column is now trying to extract itself from the pinchers. Not all news reporting is international. Some very interesting notes of social significance are to be found in the comments of men about town. Thank you for calling me a man about town, Mr. Williams. True, I do get around and observe faces. And come to think of it, my comments must have some social significance if I can tell a man how to improve his shaving habits for only a dime. Men, that famous 10-cent package of star single-edge blades is the talk of the town. Weeks of the kind of shave you dream about. Cool, clean, longer-lasting for only 10 little copper pennies. I'm spreading my advice in banner headlines. Get star, S-T-A-R, Star Super Keen Single-Edge Blades right away. No, sir, you don't have to belong to cafe society to afford a star shave. Ten cents a pack. Or, if you prefer the radio special, 14 star blades for a quarter. And be sure to get a star or gem razor if you haven't one already. Now, back to Wise William. As stated in my last broadcast, French Vice Premier Darlan, by official government decree has been made Admiral of France and given absolute military authority over all French forces, including those in the colonies. This means that in his struggle with Darlan, General Vagon has lost. Considering Darlan's understanding with Hitler, the implications of this latest French move are obvious. Now until my next broadcast, good night all. You'll find Wise Williams right here on your dial each Tuesday and Thursday. And you'll find these precision-made single-edge blades that dealers everywhere for only 10 cents a package. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.